The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, it's been a while since we've talked about the wildlife trade and wildlife conservation between China and Africa, and we're going to come into it today because there's a lot going on in in response to what's been happening with the COVID-19 crisis in Africa. Uh, there's some rather sad and depressing news that's starting to become more evident that poaching is actually on the increase, say researchers. And the problem is because without tourists, a lot of local people are becoming much more desperate for food and money. And so they are hunting wildlife more. Also, the poachers are apparently stockpiling ivory, rhino horn and other animal products in anticipation of when the travel bans will be lifted so people can basically start buying again in places like Vietnam, also in Southeast Asia and other parts of Africa and China, of course, as well. So that's some of the negative news. But in China, actually, there's been some encouraging developments. And in fact, uh, I saw a quote the other day from Steve Blake, chief representative of the group WildAid. He's based in Beijing. And he told The Guardian, the coronavirus epidemic is swiftly pushing China to reevaluate its relationship with wildlife. And I will extend that actually even beyond wildlife to other animals as well. So let me just read you a couple different points here that will help set up our conversation. Uh, Earlier this year, back in February, the National People's Congress, they released new measures that restrict the wildlife trade, banning consumption of bushmeat and sales of wildlife for meat consumption at wet markets. Uh, Between now and the time of the new wildlife protection law, that it can be amended and adopted. Now, we don't know exactly when that new law will be enacted, but it's sometime next year is what a lot of experts are starting to think about. Now, it's very important to distinguish here between these new restrictions are for the wildlife trade only, that's wild animals and live animals, and not wildlife products that are often used in fur or in traditional Chinese medicine. Now, Chinese medicine is one area of particular interest, and that's where pangolin scales come into it, and pangolins in general. Pangolin scales have been removed from an official 2020 listing of ingredients approved for use in traditional Chinese medicine. This had been something that conservationists had been asking for years to be done. Uh, Pangolins, if you recall, are one of the most trafficked animals in the world. Uh, They are endangered, and there's a huge trade between Asia and Africa. But the biggest news is that last month on June 5th, the Forestry Forestry and Grassland Administration, uh, they upgraded native Chinese pangolins to class one protected status, which is the highest level of legal protection available in China. And then finally, very quickly, something that's close to my heart as a dog lover, the Ministry of Agriculture also removed dogs from its list of approved domesticated livestock. Now they refer to dogs for the first time as companion animals. And anybody who spent time in China, particularly in rural China, places like Guizhou, where I was just last year. You've seen the dog markets. It is, for someone like me, it's heartbreaking. So it is encouraging to see all of these new developments. And Kobus, this will once again be another legacy 
of, of the COVID-19 crisis, when we look back on 2020, is that we've seen more changes in Chinese wildlife and animal legislation than we've seen for years. Yes, I think this must be, you know, kind of a, a one promising um, development coming out of all of the negative press that China has been begin been getting um, over the origin of the COVID um, nineteen virus, particularly the theory that it came from wet markets. Um, so we'll have to see, though, you know, kind of a whether whether this ban on pangolin scales stick, because I think there are some loopholes in in the law, um, and then also, you know, what the wider implication of of the out pandemic is going to be for the wet market and wildlife trading system as a whole. Let's get some perspective on this. We're thrilled to be joined for the first time by Linda Cho, who's a policy advisor for the conservation group Traffic. She's joining us for the first time from Beijing. A very good evening to you, Linda. Hi, everybody. Good morning. So, Linda, help us understand what's going on. I just kind of went through a lot of the things that have been happening. As Kobus said, there are some loopholes in all of this, so it's not perfect. It does seem to me like there's a lot of progress and people like you who follow this for a living for conservation groups like Traffic, it would strike me that you would be happy about what's happening. But give us your take on the the developments from really the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak to now in terms of some of the changes we're seeing in Chinese wildlife trafficking and trade laws. Thank you for having me first. Um, I would like to say, actually, you're right. Uh, banning all the uh, consumption of wildlife is a big progress in China. Um, but we also have some worry because uh, now they only ban the use for consumption, but it still allowed other um, wildlife farming for maybe exhibition or for medical use or for pet as well. So um, although band of wildlife consumption for food already reduce the risk for human wildlife contact and also reduce the, um, any chance for future pandemic like Zoom-borne disease outbreak, but it still have some uh, chance still live in uh, China for future human-wildlife conflict or human-wildlife contact. And maybe we'll still see some disease transmission. But we still would like to say it's a big progress in China to ban all the consumption of wildlife. What was the, what has been the discourse in China around the wildlife farms? Because, you know, in, in the West, as, as the COVID um, pandemic spread, people were very really condemned all of the wildlife farms and, and squarely put all of the blame for for the pandemic on the wildlife trading system and the markets was that was there a similar kind of discussion happening in china or are the other markets and, and farms seen in, in a different way i think in the beginning we do suspect the outbreak was coming from a wildlife source so that's why in the very beginning chinese government start to ban all uh, wildlife consumption and also try to close down all the wildlife farming for food. But um, meanwhile, they will still try to help those wildlife farmers to redirect their business, either leave the captive breeding industry or they shifting their uh, breeding to other purpose. So in China, wildlife farming is very complicated and kind of huge industry because it's not just for food, but also for medical use, for exhibition or scientific use, 
or for pet. So you can imagine there or for the fur. So that's a wide range variety for the purpose. Let's talk about pangolins very quickly because that's a story that a lot of people are following in Africa in part because of the huge demand in China for pangolins and the fact that the government this year elevated or enhanced protection of pangolins to class one status is something meaningful. Two questions for you. One, my reading of what the the Forestry and Grassland Administration did was that they only elevated native pangolins in China to class one protected status, not necessarily imported pangolins. And the most important part is that they haven't necessarily uh, again, banned the product. So if a pangolin is killed overseas and then sold, its scales are sold in China, that might be legal in the trade. Can you clarify what you know about the pangolin uh, enhancement for protection? Sure. Um, first thing, uh, when you talk about we lift the uh, protection level of Chinese pangolin in China, that's because the National Protected Species List only include native species, not like the, all the species around the world. But uh, in China, we also have a regulation saying the pre- protection level of non-native CITES species should be consistent with the protection level of the closest native protected species in taxonomy. So that means when Chinese pangolin lift from uh, class second class to the first class protection, that also means other uh, non-native pangolin species will be also uh, increase their protection level in China. That that means in the future, if there's any seizure or illegal wildlife trade involved pangolin, it doesn't matter it's native species or non-native species. They will be all treated as uh, violating uh, poaching, killing, or trading first-class national protected animal. So we would say it's a good news for non-native species of pangolin also would be uh, protected, have more protection in China. And for the medical use of pangolin skill, in China's uh, wild animal protection law, it restricted, it's prohibited to trade or consume national protected species. So eating pangolin in China is definitely illegal. It doesn't matter we have the announcement in early of this year or not, it's still illegal. But for pangolin scale, for medical use, they have a special announcement. So because pangolin scale can is a, a ingredient of traditional Chinese medicine, so they have a regulation. And Actually, um, we can say pangolin scale tray for medical use is somehow legal in China, but it doesn't mean you can buy everywhere legal. Only the authorized hospital and also pharmaceutical company can use uh, legalized or legal stockpile to do in the medical use. And those uh, Chinese medicine contain pangolin scale has to have a special label issued by the uh, National Forest and Grassland Administration and then sold in authorized hospital, then it can be counted as legal. 
otherwise, if you go to any pharmacy, traditional Chinese pharmacy or the uh, traditional medicine wholesale market, you purchase those pangolin scale. It doesn't matter uh, you see the specialized label on it or not. It's still illegal. That means only the authorized hospital can and pharmaceutical can sell those things. Otherwise, anywhere you purchase pangolin scale would be illegal. Why do you think the government, you know, kind of chose this route? Um, especially considering that, you know, I think, I think, well, in in outside of China anyway, the um, the general consensus is that those the pangolin scales are made of keratin, um, and so it's basically the same as fingernails, um, and they don't have much kind of therapeutic use. Um, why do you think the government went out of its way to set up this kind of complicated route to make it possible to still get some? Chinese pangolin scale uh, is kind of considered as a very traditional ingredient in the TCM. So it's very difficult for the government to say there's no medical use and, and there's no medical efficiency as long as there's no scientific test for that. So you can say either way, it's like a, a nail, like the keratin is, has no medical use, but we, when you have no test, it's difficult to say there's definitely no medical efficient at all. But I think the government used that. That's because before they made announcement in 2007 for regulatory notice for medical use of pangolin scales, at that time, a lot of legal company, they still hold a lot of stockpile. So the way they use, they, they manage it is to ask for annual quota. So all the a uh, registered legal uh, pharmaceutical company and hospital can follow those uh, quota to produce traditional medicine with pangolin scale content. But the problem is after 2015, the uh, responsibility of quota, announcing the quota already decentralized from the state forestry administration. That's the name of National Forestry and Grassland Administration before government reform. And then give the responsibility to the province. So since then, there's no public information available to see what's the national quota information. So that's become a loophole that there's no good way to trace how much quota was used every year. And uh, also means the transparency and also traceability of the stockpile uh, getting kind of blurry. Let's stay on the issue of traditional Chinese medicine because it's a topic that we on the outside oftentimes have a difficulty understanding the cultural importance of it inside of China because what we see on the outside, and this is things that traffic follows very closely, is the horrendous trade in the in donkey for donkey skins that go into Ejiao. We see, for example, lion bones, tiger bones, the use of rhino horn, pangolin, all of these endangered species that then get used in traditional Chinese medicine. And and traditional Chinese medicine, again, uh, uses a lot of different ingredients, some endangered, some not, but the impact on endangered animals seems tremendous. And yet it doesn't seem like, just again, from the outside looking in, that the Chinese discourse or the conversation is very sensitive to that. 
because, again, as you talked about, they're stockpiling massive amounts of pangolin scales. Also, we talk about rhino horn. And to be fair, uh, traditional Chinese medicine is not something that's only practiced in China. It's also practiced here in Vietnam and other countries as well. So I just want to make clear of that, that this is broader and bigger than just China. But talk to us a little bit about the connection between the Chinese worldview on traditional Chinese medicine and the impact that it has on wildlife. That's a really good question. Um, well, I think it's the Chinese government kind of try to balance the way of maintaining the traditional Chinese medicine practice because it's also a, a intangible uh, heritage in China. So that's try to find some way to balance. We do concern about the endangered species protection and conservation, but we also want to maintain the uh, traditional Chinese medicine culture. So we believe and we also see the Chinese government getting more and more concerned about their impact, like the traditional Chinese medicine or any business around the world to cause the impact at global scale. But they also try to balance it. So it's a little bit difficult to say what they are going to do, but we can tell they, they try to minimize the impact. But meanwhile, they also try to maintain our own culture and also the traditional use of medicine. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. How concerned do you think that the Chinese government is about the criminal networks that support these um, the, the trade in some of the some of these products? Particularly, we know that some of them are also, you know, trading in weapons and drugs frequently. Um, so, you know, is there is there a kind of a general worry that that the that Chinese traditional medicine or just generally, you know, kind of wildlife trade as a, a wider wildlife trade um, is is making China more vulnerable to international criminal syndicates. You mean because of the this uh, endangered wildlife trade make China more vulnerable to the organized crime or? Yes, because or because this, many of the same organizations who trade the animals also trade in, in guns, for example, or in different kinds of drugs. I think in some way, um, there are definitely a lot of organized crime is using this as an opportunity to make profit and sell endangered species to China, but uh, Chinese government also uh, stand firm to combat those illegal activities like the customs around China and also the forestry police in China. They also um, did a lot of um, work to stop those illegal activities. So I would say yes, in some way it makes China more vulnerable. Uh, to those crime, but uh, the law enforcement in China, but also working hard to uh, stop those things. Yeah, and to be fair, Cobus, the the drug trafficking and the weapons trafficking that these that these organized syndicates are engaged in don't necessarily trade drugs and weapons with the Chinese. They trade the uh, wildlife products with the Chinese and then use those funds to trade drugs and weapons and other things with other parts of the world. So the Chinese wouldn't necessarily, I think, be that interested or that concerned beyond what every country may be. 
for you know arms trafficking in other parts of the world that that'd be my guess what do you think yeah no that that sounds like it makes sense like you know if, you know that if if it's not impacting on the domestic population there's less political pressure to to kind of enforce it yeah you know linda let's let's talk about political pressure because back in 2018 when the Chinese government announced that it was banning the ivory trade, it was widely seen that this was in response to a lot of pressure that came from the young generation, young people who on social media were really pressuring the older generation that an elephant that was alive is far better than one is for decoration. And it really seemed that the Chinese were responding to that pressure. And there was these pictures of young people all over the country on Weibo and Weixing on WeChat who held up an X in front of an ivory, uh, you know, a store selling ivory. And it was really an interesting example of potentially the government responding to public pressure. Talk to us a little bit about two things here. How effective has the ivory ban been since it was announced in 2018? Do Do you see ivory? Is it traded anywhere, even on the black market? And should we have confidence that these new measures will follow the ivory trade ban as well? First of all, in terms of the ivory market, now we have noticed in the physical market, it's very rare to see ivory market, uh, ivory products sold in public. But it's more and more often we will find ivory they shifting from the physical market to online market. That means the way it's more concealed and far more difficult than before uh, to do like law enforcement or supervision, but we do have um, helped the law enforcement to do some online monitoring, also report um, some violation. We also work with those e-commerce platform to tell them how to use certain code word uh, those seller usually use to hide their uh, ivory cell activities. And then they will be able to remove those uh, posts or advertisement from their own website. And in China, the the only exemption is the antique market uh, for ivory. But fortunately, because we have worked with the law enforcement to report a lot of illegal auction, that means they don't get the proof from the National uh, Forest and Grassland Administration. So we will see uh, the ivory auction market getting um, getting smaller and smaller and they do know, the auction house do know they shouldn't um, auction any ivory without proper permit. And so far, there's no permit have been applied from uh, to the National Forest and Grassland Administration. So it's a good way we will see the uh, illegal market of ivory is getting um, shrinking in China. Um, but we also need to uh, put more effort on combating online uh, ivory trade as well. So uh, it's a good sign to see the ivory ban is kind of effective, but it's a long-term um, process. We need to uh, pay a lot of effort through the uh, throughout the, the road to make sure it would get to the end and everything goes um, kind of like we expected. So you're confident that with the announcement on dogs and on pangolins and on the and wild animals, that the, that people will follow the rules and the government will actually follow up based on what they've said, based on what we've seen with ivory. You're confident, and traffic is confident that that this will actually happen. Yes. Um, what are some of the other policy goals that um, that traffic is pursuing at the moment in China? Fortunately, we do see the uh, management of pangolin. Uh, 
uh, management announcement just made a few days ago, and now uh, we also looking at the Chinese government is also updating the national protected animal list. So we will see a lot of um, animals. They are uh, changing their protection level to make it uh, consistent with their CITES appendix listing. Uh, that means uh, because in the past 30 years, the protection uh, list haven't been updated. So a lot of animals, their protection level is not um, consistent with the CITES appendix. So we are looking forward to see um, those updates will be finalized and then uh, announced in, in the uh, near future. So that means a lot of species in China uh, will get better protection that will also, like the pangolin case, benefit other non-native species as well. Let's just wrap up our discussion in terms of what should people take away from what happened over the past six months in terms of all of these new initiatives and that's happened. And COVID, it seems like, brought a lot of this to to the fore. Uh, what should we think about this? How should we understand what's happening in China in terms of wildlife protection? And you kind of you know, do this for a living in terms of framing and policy analysis. But for those of us who don't follow this as closely, help us understand the framework for what we're watching now in terms of wildlife conservation and protection. I think in the past six months, uh, we would say it's a big progress because first of all, the Chinese government banned the wildlife consumption in China. And meanwhile, a lot of the general public start to realize the health risk and also the uh, negative impact on health for consuming wildlife. And then we will see uh, the pangolin um, upgraded and also more management notice and regulation coming up. So it's very positive to see the uh, wildlife conservation and management in China is getting um, more and more improved. And uh, we also see the law enforcement really follow uh, the government's announcement, do a lot of um, uh, inspection, also um, uh, go around to inspect not just the market, but also the captive breeding farming to make sure all the illegal activities are removed. So it, it I think there are a lot of things happened in the past six months, but overall we would say it's a positive um, direction we would like to see. And we really look forward to see China will do more things on wildlife management. Well, if it's anything like what's happened with ivory, which has been a dramatic improvement, and I can tell as someone who was living in China for the past couple of years, uh, to see how the ivory stores have gone away, the ivory markets have gone away. Now in the subways, you see a lot of public awareness about ivory consumption and protecting conservation and protecting animals. Uh, it's really great and exciting to see. Also, uh, there's news that a new Chinese drama about pangolin conservation is going to start shooting very soon. Uh, that's all part, of, I guess, of the public awareness that follows the enhanced protection for pangolins. Let's hope that what has been going on with pangolins will follow what happened with elephants and ivory and that the population will recover a little bit. Uh, Linda, we'll follow up with you in a few months just to see what's going on. We really want to thank you for taking the time to, to join us. Linda Cho is a policy advisor for Traffic based in Beijing. If you'd like to follow Traffic, you can do so at uh, on Twitter at Traffic underscore WL Trade. Linda, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for having me. Thomas, I tend to agree with Linda's assessment that this is a lot of activity, a lot of movements going on. This is a net positive, and it's something that I don't think would have happened 
with the expediency that it has without COVID. And again, it's one of the rare silver linings that we're seeing from COVID that we are, in fact, experiencing an upgrade and a new awareness among Chinese policymakers on environmental issues and conservation issues that we've been hearing people like traffic call for years. And now in the space of six months, we've had action on dogs, pangolins, wildlife trade, and so forth. And I think more is probably going to come. The motivations I wish were different. I wish it was in the name of animal conservation, but I don't think it is. I think, it's, as you pointed out, it's because the concern that this will happen again. It happened in 2003 with the wet markets in uh, southern China and Guangdong province that sparked the SARS outbreak. Again, it happened now in Wuhan. So they're doing it because they are afraid of another pandemic, which they're right to be concerned about, especially as we're also worried about animal-based diseases like African swine fever. So their motivations, I think, are self-serving. But at the end of the day, animals like pangolins are benefiting. Yes, you know, and the thing is, you know, like stopping further pandemics is a good reason to do things, you know. So so I think it's, it, it ends up being win-win. And uh, you know, I, I think I think what what would be interesting now, obviously, the the political will or pandemic-driven kind of political will behind closing wet markets is one thing. The will to to close down the pipelines of of animal wildlife products is another issue. Um, you know, so so it'll be interesting to see where the energy falls. You know, as 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 it goes forward. But I I agree with you. I think it's very encouraging. So that's encouraging. One of the other areas to be worried about is the fact that. While China's cracking down, other parts of Southeast Asia are still very, very dynamic. And the Southeast Asian market alone, ASEAN, is about 600 million people. And it has a lot of flow of Chinese tourists, also Chinese organized crime and whatnot that come back and forth into countries like Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar. And so a lot of the, the trafficking routes have been, re, have been diverted into Southeast Asia where Chinese buyers then come where, there, again, there's much less enforcement than there is in China. So that is one of the other concerns as well. So we'd like to hopefully start to see some of the enforcement measures that have happened in China move south into Southeast Asia so that there isn't this huge inconsistency between what's going on in Vietnam and what's going on in China. That, of course, is one of the big concerns. If you'd like some insights on what's going on in Vietnam, I highly recommend that you check out The Ivory Game on Netflix. And one of our old friends of the program, Huang Hongxiang, who went undercover, he was in Vietnam buying from Vietnamese traders and showed how it's then brought across the border. Now, that was a few years ago. Not sure if the Chinese-Vietnamese border is still porous for wildlife products, but it is an area of concern that we have to also keep our eyes on. Finally, Cobus, about what's going on in Africa today and the news that poaching is actually going up. That's number one. Number two, we've also seen in terms of the Botswana elephant population, while on the one hand it was very, very good that elephants weren't being killed in the past couple of years at the rates they were before the China ban, the growth in the elephant population in countries like Botswana also created new problems because elephants were interacting much more with humans. So again, this is, these are very, very complex answers that don't have simple solutions to them. 
Yeah, that, you know, in Africa, so much has to do with with money. You know, kind of with with not only the the disruptive influence that that large animals like elephants, um, who need to to range far and wide, they need very large space. Um, they move in large groups. Um, you know, the impact they have on rural economies, but also the wider kind of economic logic of of caring for animals. You know, so. In South Africa, particularly, a lot of a lot of animal breeding is for the hunting market. Um, you know, so so it's a kind of a subset of of tourism. Now tourism is slumping because of COVID. So so suddenly there is this. Um, some farms are, are talking about the possibility of culling some of the animals. You know, it's 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 this kind of like ongoing issue of like of the the difficulty of having a, a natural system fit into a human economy. Um, and and that is, I think, is is some of what brought us COVID to begin with because you know as, as we've seen in the past a lot of the wildlife farming um, in China was encouraged by local authorities as a way to um, to keep rural rural populations going economically as as traditional agriculture um, moved into mega agriculture like intensive agriculture so you know kind of so, so it's it's all part of the problem of how to fit a natural system or how to how to meet a, you know kind of create good meeting um, spaces between natural systems and human economies and and you know humankind is not very good that. This issue of conservation is one that we've actually, you know, become a little bit lackadaisical over the past couple of years in covering. And we're going to step up our coverage this year in part because of COVID, but also because of the importance in the China-Africa relationship and to make sure that these sustainability issues stay at the front of the conversation in the China-Africa discourse. And oftentimes, especially now with COVID, trade wars, the economy, all the different things going on, it's very easy to have these sustainability and conservation issues pushed aside. So stay tuned with uh, to the podcast for a lot of upcoming episodes on this. We're also going to be doing Q&As with experts like Linda that will be featured on the website. And of course, we'll be featuring all of this in our daily email newsletter that goes out to, uh, to subscribers. We'd love for you to join our growing community of readers around the world. Just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code podcast and we're going to throw you a super generous discount for being a loyal listener. We'd love to have you again, part of our community of readers for, uh, the, for this newsletter that Cobus and I put out every day. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Cobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. Mm-hmm.